Let's talk about that speech with Claire and Rachel. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Let's Talk About Speech podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Claire. And we are back for another episode. We were on a little bit of a break, had a lot of stuff going on personally. Claire and I got to see each other in real life. That was amazing. Um, But we are back with a new episode and we are super excited about this one. Yeah. So we, Rachel and I decided to talk a little bit about the current best practice in the stuttering world right now, because there is so much talk and change going on, um, in relation to treating people who stutter and how we talk about people who stutter. Um, and so we just kind of wanted to get on here and talk with each other. And Rachel just went to an awesome, awesome CEU course with, um, Dr. Scott Yaros, who um, Mm -hmm. I'm so jealous. So I'm so (laughs) excited to hear about your experience with that. Um, so she's going to talk a little bit about that and we're just going to kind of chat. So if you guys have any feedback, any suggestions, um, because obviously we, we will never pretend to know it all. So please either Instagram message us or email us, and we would love to talk with you further about it. Um, so the first thing we wanted to talk a little bit about was getting away from the word fluency. So this is a little bit, it's not, I feel like as new as we think, I think people have been trying to get away from it for a little while. I think it's just becoming more openly talked about. Um, but it's hard because obviously in the DSM five, the diagnosis code is still a fluency disorder. So like Mm -hmm. we as speech pathologists know stuttering to be fluency disorder. That's what we call it. That's what we bill for. We get it. Um, the, the issue becomes when we start using the word fluency with our clients, because it's, it's a little bit, it's just a little bit wrong. And it, I think Mm -hmm. can feel a little bit like we are expecting fluency when really that's, that shouldn't be the goal. And it shouldn't be the goal for those of you who might have it as goals. Mm -hmm. Um, but just thinking about what that term really tells people who stutter um, and what it tells people who stutter, even from an early age, you know? Um, so the other part of that then is using the word stuttering. I've had, I actually just recently um, evaluated somebody who, a, a younger kid who had seen a speech therapist prior, who had told the parents to not use the word at all. Like don't use the word mm. because that'll just make them anxious. It'll make it worse. It lit- they literally told them it would make it oh worse. My gosh. I know. And I'm like, this was a whole thing that, um, Dr. Scott Yaris talked about in yes. his presentation and that there's just like this really negative stigma. And actually a lot of the notes that I have to talk about today, I just direct copy and pasted from him. And one of the main things he said was the word fluency is misleading. It's not inclusive and it has super strong negative connotations. Mm -hmm. So he's heard of people saying I have fluency clients and I have, you know, you just mentioned the fluency disorder and whatever it may be. It's just like tiptoeing around Around stuttering. Yes. And, and that seems kind of backwards as speech pathologists, because if you think about our job, our job is to diagnose, right. Evaluate, diagnose, find the root of whatever's going on and then treat it. So why are we, why are we doing that? And then not saying, what it is. Right. Exactly. And by not saying it, what does that tell people who stutter about being someone who stutters? Right. It's just, it's this merry-go-round effect of it's never going to be talked about. We're never going to feel okay about it. It's, 
it's just a bad, a bad cycle to be in for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the other side of that, that, um, I was reading, I think even Yaros and Reeves have talked about is considering covert stuttering under the mm-hmm. term of fluency. So like, does that really describe the stuttering experience when you're talking about someone who stutters, but they're a covert stutter mm-hmm. is fluency really describing their experience. Um, it's just, it's just interesting to think about and something I, I urge you not to, it's hard, especially if you learned it in grad school to change right away. But I urge you to start thinking about when you say fluency. Um, I'm also curious, Rachel, have, did you ever run into, or do you ever run into in the schools, teachers thinking fluency means reading? Because sometimes that would happen to me yes. in the schools when I, because I used the yes. word fluency in the schools and they mm-hmm. would be like, oh, they're reading fluency is this. And I'd be like, yeah, hey, yeah. And you're like, no, 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 <laughs> not what I'm talking yeah. about at all. Yeah, um, for sure. So that can be confusing like that, mm-hmm. especially if you're working in the schools, teachers might confuse it with reading and that's not mm-hmm. actually what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, I, there's videos and blogs that go over this even more on stuttering therapy resources blog. Um, that's with, uh, Nina Reeves and Scott Yaros. They do mm-hmm. a lot of talking about that. So I, again, urge you to do your own research, think about it, think about when you say it, where you say it, and just how it affects the people you're working with. Yeah. My next soapbox, <laughs> I go on this soapbox all the time with my grad students because it's so hard not to do this. And it's hard for me too, because we, in grad school, we even did fluency counts all the time. Mm-hmm. So fluency counts. Um, okay. <laughs> There's a lot with this, I feel like. So um, should we do fluency counts, I guess, is the biggest question or disfluency counts, whatever you want to call it. Speaking mm-hmm. samples in general, should we be tracking the amount of disfluencies and the amount of fluencies that a client is having. And I'm here to tell you, I don't really know. Like I'm on the fence with it. I I know there are people that feel strongly that we should not be taking it at all. Um, And I agree with their reasoning. I agree that giving it a percentage of how much someone stutters is, is really wrong. And it can feel really demeaning and it can feel like, okay, what if I never decrease that percentage of disfluency right. what happens then. Like I, I get that that has that negative aspect to it. Um, but from a data standpoint, I still feel like I need to take them sometimes. So mm-hmm. what I've started doing, um, because I work at a university clinic and I'm teaching grad students, I don't feel right not teaching them to take a speaking sample because I do think it's an important skill for them to listen for disfluencies for diagnosing this disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's where I'm at. And I've started, we, we take a monthly speaking sample just for progress or for, I shouldn't even say that. I almost see, I almost slipped up just for Mm -hmm. monitoring. It's not Mm -hmm. about progress, but just for monitoring, um, where they're at and where they're at with their stuttering. And I'm, you know, I, again, it's hard because I can see the other side of the coin. I don't mm-hmm. know. What do you because think? here's the thing. He, okay. So I agree with you. I'm right there. Yeah. And honestly, I think once a month is a good balance of still yeah. checking in yeah. without doing like completely overdoing it. Like I know in certain situations you and I have both been in, we have been mm-hmm. required to do them several a day Yes, in different situations. Yeah. And like, that is overkill. Yes. Um, so I, I justify it that way for sure. But then you get on the side of like, let's talk about insurance. Mm-hmm. How do you bill? 
right? Everyone wants to see numbers, right? How do they qualify? So here's the other thing. Um, Scott, you're going to hear me say Dr. Scott Yaris, (laughs) but I love it. Yeah. He said in his, um, presentation, he was like, I cannot tell you the last time I Mm -hmm. did an SSI, right? Like the actual formal diagnostic, right? Whatever. And while I'm unsure about that, like I can't imagine myself never doing one. Mm -hmm. I do think it's important and I do personally use it to get that standard score for qualification purposes. Like you can't just have nothing on a met, right. Or whatever you guys use and the schools, but, um, and same for insurances. Uh, but then you also have to look at the other side and it's like, but why am I doing it? So one thing he said during his talk on that was the stutter is not the repetition that we count. Mm -hmm. The stutter is the underlying feeling of being stuck. And when you think about that, so it's not the repetition that you're counting in these fluency samples. It's the underlying feeling of being stuck. So really, shouldn't you be looking at like the emotions, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. think about your oasis experience. or right. yeah, something like that. Like the speaker's yep. experience yep. of, you know, how they, yep. they are in certain situations. So I, I have seriously read that sentence maybe a yeah. trillion times since then. I love that. It's shifting my mindset a lot. Yeah. Because it shouldn't like that percentage and even the standardized score on the SSI, like that shouldn't define anyone who mm-hmm. stutters, no matter what age, no matter where they're at in treatment and placing that modifier on it. It's yeah. just, it doesn't make sense. So mm-hmm. I urge you to read actually Katie Gore's blog. Um, she's on speech IRL. Um, she wrote an awesome blog on like, stop the disfluency counts. Um, and she wrote in there, I'm going to, she wrote what she's been starting to re or starting to add to her evaluations, um, evaluation notes. And what I've really started ad living something Mm -hmm. like this to mine, but she says, um, she's added based on additional evaluation information, actual severity ranges from mild to profound, dependent on contextual communication factors. And I think that's so important. I also love that because yeah. put yourself in an evaluation exactly. situation, mm-hmm. maybe this child or person, adult, whoever, maybe they're brand new to you, bam, they're already feeling more anxious. You're not, com- they're not comfortable with you. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're super comfortable with you. Is that accurate too? Maybe they're a covert stutterer. So they are yes. just not stuttering at all because they know they're just not at that time. Like it's yeah. just, yeah, it's. And while the SSI does look at, right, like that monologue versus conversation yeah. versus reading, if they are of reading age, it's, still I, one, day. it's, it's one day in one yeah. situation. Like totally. I just, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. She also talks about evaluating three aspects of disfluencies, which I've started doing. Um, so she evaluates the personal experience. So like actually talking to them about their experience with stuttering, mm-hmm. which I think the Oasis gets into a little bit, but yeah. even more specific, I like the Oasis as like a starting point, but then I look at those scores and I ask like more specific questions about those. Um, and then intensity frequency. And I've actually added on duration because I'm curious. Well, duration is, I guess. Yeah. Duration. Yeah. Um, because I I'm interested in the time piece I've talked, I went to a, um, NSA meeting last month where we talked a lot about the time piece to it. And it's just so interesting 
to hear people who stutter talk about that time element of Mm -hmm. like the time pressure and like how long their stuttering feels to them. It doesn't matter how long it actually is. Like the number of seconds is Mm -hmm. it matters how long it feels to them. So, um, I do this by a rating scale. So like one to 10, one to five, whatever I'm feeling that day, honestly, how, how, how old they are sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, but they rate the intensity, frequency, and duration. And I think that's so telling because I might not be hearing those same numbers, but it's what their experience is. And I think that's what we need to find out. Yeah, for sure. I know you mentioned the Oasis. One of the things that he said, uh, because Dr. Yars is the one who developed that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things he said, and Claire, I know this is going to make you so excited, is that they're currently developing an early childhood version. Oh my gosh. So I know. So it's for ages three to six, and it actually comes with two forms, one that the parent fills out and then one that the child fills out with the clinician. And it's like smiley faces and whatever. But when I heard that, I was like, bring it on. Oh my gosh. I would love, I have a preschooler now that I would love to just get in his brain Mm -hmm. and ask him. And I've tried, but it'll be like so much nicer to have something in Mm -hmm. front of me. I like the visual aspect of it too. So you're not just telling them to tell you feelings, but visually, like, how do you feel about it? So, oh yeah. And I guess they, um, the whole reason he kind of came up with that was he said, like, traditionally we've assumed that preschool children are completely unaware of their stutter. Um, and obviously today we know that's not true at all. So no, I have, so I've had three sessions so far with this preschooler and his mom has just been floored with how much he has talked about his speech and his stuttering, which Mm -hmm. she, because when they came in, she was like, oh no, he doesn't, he doesn't Mm -hmm. really know what's happening, but he does. Kids are way more aware Mm -hmm. than what we think. And again, supporting the reason we should talk about stuttering early on so that we're not tiptoeing around this thing that we're treating them for and telling them, you know, it's okay we're just, we're here to teach you about something called stuttering. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be this bad thing. We can be an exciting speech teacher. That's teaching them something new. Like Mm -hmm. it can be really positive. Yeah. So then moving on to goals, goals are hard. (laughs) I (laughs) Rachel, Rachel and I take notes for episodes and you can see right now that I, I said, here are some examples of mine. And I actually left it blank because I don't even know what I want to tell you guys about goals. Goals are hard and it, and it's hard because it really depends on the client. Like all of my goals are so different for every client that I see who stutters and it's just so hard, but stuttering therapy resources, practical guide. I, I swear you would think we were sponsored by them, but we're not. I know. I know. They're just (laughs) amazing. It's just an amazing resource you guys truly, but they have a school age practical guide um, where they outline how to make goals. So they even say in there, like, we, we really don't want to give you goals to like copy paste because that's Mm -hmm. not the point. Like every Mm -hmm. client is different and every client's goal should be different. Um, but here's a guide on kind of the important pieces of it. And it really does encompass their awareness, their education, their desensitization, their emotional impact, it's all related to that and not, I guess the big takeaway here is not, we'll decrease from 11% disfluencies mm-hmm. to 5% disfluencies. Like we're not yeah. doing that. And I'm guilty. I've done those goals in the past. I will mm-hmm. fully say, um, because that's all we knew for a while until honestly, until Yaros and Reeves came out mm-hmm. with, Hey, you can do something else. <laughs> yes. Yes. So one thing that he really stressed was 
And I know this is personally, I think this is more of a parent thing, or maybe Mm. that's just how I've experienced it since majority of my um, speech therapy experiences have been with children. Mm -hmm. But he said, recovery is not the primary goal of therapy. And if you're an SLP listening to this, you're like, well, yeah, you don't recover from stuttering. Right. Um, But he was really stressing that we want to ensure that number one, they're good communicators. Mm -hmm. And then number two, they've developed positive attitudes and emotions related to stuttering. Mm -hmm. And he said, so commonly, we are only thinking about the good communicators part, right? We want them to be able to say their message effectively, but so frequently we're leaving out those positive attitudes and emotions. And guess what? You can't have one without the other, right? They go hand in hand, um, like so frequently. And if you're leaving one piece out, you're, you're going to see very, very slow, if not no growth right on that first part, because they really do go hand in hand. Well, and like you said, parents are such a huge part of this because Mm -hmm. they, and I've, I've made the mistake too, where I don't tell them early on that recovery is not the primary, because I don't think Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't think I have to say it, right. But in their mind, it still is like, okay, my kid's going to go to speech therapy. They're going to stop stuttering. Mm -hmm. That's why they're going to speech therapy. And that's in their mind. And Mm -hmm. if you're not careful and you don't talk about initially, and obviously you know, there's, there's right. And there's right ways to talk about it. You don't have to say it in like a negative or Mm -hmm. mean way, but just talking to them about the fact that, you know, stuttering is something that they are going to live with possibly lifelong, but it doesn't have to be bad. And I think having that conversation early is best because Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to go back once they think that you are a fixer. Yeah. A lot of parents think we're fixers in all, mm-hmm. all areas of speech therapy. Not yes. yes. We, we are supposed to be the fixers, Yeah, um, but parents need to, they need to understand that. Um, they also need to be a part of the team. Like I've, I've again made mistakes where I am treating teens, especially who I'm only seeing the teen and I'm mm-hmm. not really seeing the parent because I've built this rapport with the teenager and I respect their boundaries that they want from their parent. Mm-hmm. But the teenager is telling me a lot of different things mm-hmm. that they're fine. Oh, they're fine. They have this great positive attitude. Nothing's wrong. And then their mom will tell me about this college visit where they completely broke down. And like all these things were happening that mm-hmm. I know are a direct relation to their feelings about their stuttering experience. And I would have never known. So mm-hmm. make your parents a part of the team, even if you have to kind of talk to them on the side, you can still yeah. have that trust from your client, but still involve the parent. That's a big thing I've learned. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I know this is one thing that we've talked about on our past, um, episodes about stuttering, mm-hmm. but one thing that, um, Dr. Yarish really stressed was before children can make any changes in their speech, they need to understand more about talking and stuttering before you can even address techniques. Yeah. So this is where he said, teach the speech buddies, the mechanisms. But one thing that I thought was really interesting is he said, start off with a completely non-speech analogy because it really helps build a foundation. So the example that he gave was, what parts of the body do you need to run? which I thought was really interesting. He said to teach terms like too much, too little, and just right. So for an example, what would happen if you run too fast? What happens if you run too slow? What happens if you have, you know, just the right balance? Um, 
one bone. He said, I do have a bone to pick and everyone started laughing. And he was like, if I hear someone say my speech is bumpy one more time (laughs) without explaining it, he was like, honestly, I wish you could take it out altogether, but Mm -hmm. people will teach my speech is bumpy versus my teachers. My speech is smooth, Mm -hmm. but not, you know, elaborate to it. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. like, if you have a visual with a car, right? The car's the best. Yeah. That's I feel like that's what's most frequently done. Yeah, definitely. Um, or he did, he gave the example of peanut butter, smooth peanut butter. Wait, and- that's fun. Oh, I like that. <laughs> we love a, we love a little therapy snack, right? Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, so yeah, but he was like, you have to associate meaning to that because you're asking a three, four, five, whatever year old, mm-hmm. um, to talk about their speech and, you know, give it meaning, but you're not explaining the meaning behind it. So that was something that I was like, oh, duh, how have, you know, like that's never. Right. Especially with kids. Like it's, Mm -hmm. you have to put something they can relate to. Yeah. Otherwise, right. It's going to go right over their head. I think so often we just assume we're going to like jump right in and they're going to understand what we're talking about. And kids, they might act like they do, but they might not really be generalizing that to anything. So I love that. I love the, I love the running analogy. I haven't heard that. That's so cool Mm -hmm. to teach the terms because right. You teach, you teach the, uh, like the speech, like bumpy and smooth. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then the terms of like too fast and too slow. And I, I love that. That's yeah. Like and my mind. His, the main thing he was really stressing was to make sure you teach those terms too much, too little, and just right. Mm-hmm. And you can really yeah. apply it to whatever analogy or whatever comparison you're coming up with. Yeah. And he was like, draw it out. Like, yeah. what does too little look like? What does yeah. too much look like? Yeah. Because that can, you know, if you put too much peanut butter on your bread, yes. well, then you have an issue. But if you put too little, you know, yeah. so yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Something else that I have been really big into lately, especially this is for probably a little older kids, like 11 and up, I would say, um, but really teaching what it means to be an advocate for themselves Mm -hmm. and for others, um, teaching it early on. And obviously you can teach older kids and adults this as well and talk to them about it, but it's a really good, um, like discussion activity and it gets some really cool responses. Um, I've brought it to some of my groups And just talking about like, okay, what does it mean to be an advocate? What does it look like to be an advocate? How do you advocate for others? Um, And then even giving them situations, like how would you advocate for a friend who is getting made fun of and not even bring, I do this all without even speech relating to it first. Mm -hmm. And I even did a whole day of this just without speech. And then the next day I was like, okay, what would you do to advocate for yourself and for your speech. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, it's just cool. You get really good responses out of it. And I think it's such an important skill for kids, especially in that like preteen teenage years to have, because whether we like it or not, other kids don't know about stuttering. And unfortunately mm-hmm. their responses might not always be positive. And I think it's really important for our kids who stutter to feel power in how they can advocate for themselves and how they can explain what stuttering is and how they can educate others. Mm-hmm. And they can feel that sense of comfort knowing they know how to handle those situations. So yeah. I think it's huge. The advocate um, part is so important. And one thing that he really stressed was parents. Like mm-hmm. obviously a parent is on their child's side, right. but there are things that they may be doing that 
they're unknowingly not helping the process. So he was really stressing that parents need to create an environment where stuttering is viewed like straightforward. Like we're saying the word stuttering, we're not saying fluency. And he said, there's really two ways you need to do that. So the first is modeling those appropriate reactions. Mm -hmm. So the words that parents are using and the reactions to their child stuttering can really affect how that child's going to react. Um, he was stressing the fact that children, again, don't have those cognitive skills to understand figurative language. Like I had a terrible day. What does that mean? Um, so instead you should say you stuttered more today and that's just part of stuttering or talking today was a bit harder. Um, and the reason that he was stressing that was that it really helps to convey that acceptance and then show the child that it is okay to stutter. Um, and then the second part of that was making sure that you're responding also in a supportive way. Mm -hmm. So it helps those parents to see that their response to stuttering is probably different than their response to another issue that their child is facing. So like the examples he gave were coloring outside of the line, spilling a drink, falling off a bike. And he explained it where there's a three-step process. So first you have to acknowledge the issue. So we're talking about the stuttering, normalizing it. So you just had a harder day today and that's part of talking. Mm -hmm. And then refocus their child's attention to the task. Um, And he was really stressing that it should really be treated like any other day-to-day issue that may occur in their lives, which I thought was really interesting. No, I love that. I think always making sure that you include the parent and Mm -hmm. include them in how you want them to, well, not want them, but how they should be responding. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. Um, another, a couple other considerations I wanted to kind of leave with, and then I know we'll wrap this up. How long have we, this Mm -hmm. has been a longer one. I know (laughs) we'll wrap it up for you guys. I know, I know we try and keep them short. Um, so one of my big things, um, since working with people who stutter is learning from my clients. Like I learned so much from them. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Like I, I learned just as much from them as they do from me. Um, and it's not, it's out of the textbook. So like getting out of the textbooks, out of the articles, even, and looking at the real experiences of people who stutter, I think we're lucky in the time period we're in that Mm -hmm. so many people who stutter are advocating and are reaching out into these blogs and these Instagram posts and talking about their experiences. So I really urge you to follow those and to read those because that's the best way I think I've learned about the stuttering experience is through actual people who stutter Mm -hmm. because nobody can say it or tell it better than them. Um, And then the other thing that I think is really important when planning therapy is just considering that piece of temperament. Um, We talk Mm -hmm. a lot. I feel like temperament is like a big word lately, but I think it's so important to think about, especially with children who can't tell you what their temperament is. Like I've worked with adults who can clearly tell me the type of temperament they have, or can Mm -hmm. tell me about they're very emotionally regulated. um, Or maybe not, I shouldn't say regulated, but they're aware of the Mm -hmm. type of emotional human they are, and they can tell me what their temperament looks like. But for kids, it's really important to talk to parents about what they see in their child. So like, how often do you see your child feeling these types of feelings? Um, what is their reaction size? 
what, what do they react to, to learn a little bit more about their temperament? Obviously the parent might not know fully, but just talking to them about their experiences and reactions and emotions from other things in their environment, not just their speech, not, not even their speech at all can tell you a lot about their temperament and can tell you a lot about how you can move forward with talking about their emotions and their reactions to their speech, because it is something that, especially with children, I don't think you want to just jump in, obviously, like Yaros was mm-hmm. saying with the, with the analogies, you don't want to just jump in and say bumpy. You don't want to jump right. in and say like, oh, tell me when your speech makes you sad. Like you don't, mm-hmm. you don't just jump in like that. Mm-hmm. And you need to know how the child is going to react and respond and really be aware of their emotional state. So yes. I think that's big. This hit a sweet spot with us. Claire and I could talk about this all of the time. (laughs) And I think there are going to be some future episodes. So stay tuned, but I am going to leave you with this, which is how he closed and what has, you know, like continually had me thinking of how I can change my approach, change my treatment, all of that. And he said, the problem is not that an individual stutters, but that they don't know how to cope with their stutter. Oh. I love it. We'll leave you with that. Thanks guys. Bye guys. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me, Rachel on Instagram at super sweet speech or on my website, speech is super sweet.com. And you can find me Claire on Instagram at kindly underscore speech or on Facebook on kindly speech. And then you can email Rachel and I, if you have any questions or concerns, we are let's talk about speech podcast at gmail.com. Thanks.